Well, I'm going to say something I haven't said in a while to you, and that is this. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do. Then turn in them to Matthew chapter 13, and I want to talk about that for a second. You know, we are building a culture at this church, and it is a culture full of people who value God's word enough to open it and to have it in their lap every day. And that includes today, by the way. I know that we kind of get out of that habit. I know that we put the words up on the screen. We do that for our guests and visitors and for their convenience. But for you, we want you to physically, literally open God's word, get used to using it, know your way around it, make it yours. If you do not have a Bible or you'd like the same one that most of the rest of us have, same translation, literally same page. We make them available in the back and you can get one after the service for $15. That's our actual cost. Or if you can't pay $15 and it's really, you know, something you're going to use, then just take it. It's yours. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, then turn to Matthew chapter 13 as we continue today with a series of messages that we started last week and that we're calling simply Jesus and, and as Matt said at the beginning of the service, what we're doing is we've gone out and collected up a bunch of really important paradigm-shifting, game-changing kind of topics, and now we're coming to the Bible, which is the mind of Christ, and we're saying, okay, Lord, what is your mind on this issue? And here's why we're doing that. We're not doing that simply to be informed, simply so we can go, wow, you know, that's cool, and the next time I play Bible trivia, if a question comes up on that topic, I'll know the answer. It's not a game that we're playing. It's life and death. We're doing it not to be informed, but to be transformed, to place our minds under the mind of our master and to say, "Okay, I want my mind to look like your mind on this particular issue. And so that my life can begin to look like your life. Because we are the body of Christ in the world today. And last week, we talked about an incredibly important topic. The topic of life. The topic of unborn life in particular. And if you missed last week, I would really encourage you, as an individual, as a parent, as a young person, to listen to that message. If you have a student and he or she is in college, send it to them. And then talk with them about it. It's a message of grace. It's a message of forgiveness. It's a message of restoration and of truth on that particular issue. Our minds need to be like that of the Lord. And today we're going to look at the topic of treasure. And here are the two questions that we're going to ask. Question number one, what do I treasure or value most in life? Not what do I say or even what do I sing that I treasure or value most? But what does my whole life say that I treasure or value most? Because that's the real answer. So we want to be real about this. Question number two, what should I value most according to Jesus? So that my mind might be transformed by his mind, that my life might begin to reflect his incredibly unusual value system in the midst of this world. So we pick up our study today. With that in mind, in Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 44, where Jesus says this, he says, the kingdom of heaven and already we have to stop and we have to stop because that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're talking about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is coming to us with the kingdom of heaven. And now he's going to tell us two stories that illustrate the great value of the kingdom of heaven. He's coming to us. And by these stories, he's saying, guys, here's what you should value most with your lips and lives. So then what is it? What's the kingdom of heaven? Because it then begins to make sense of the whole rest of the conversation. The kingdom of heaven, it's not a small answer. It starts, by the way, in our own heart. The kingdom of heaven, for example, encompasses our own personal salvation experience. That moment in my life and in your life where all of a sudden, whether you were just kind of walking through life and stumbled upon Jesus, who you were never expecting 
to meet or you were moving through life purposefully searching, not knowing it was Jesus necessarily that you were searching for, but in fact, searching for someone to make sense of this whole thing. In either case, you encounter Jesus and you come face to face with the reality of who he is. God made man of what he's done. Entered into this world to live the perfect life that God requires of you. And to wash away everything that stands between you and God with his blood and then to rise from the dead. That he might defeat not just sin, but also death for you. You come face to face with that Jesus and with yourself in that moment, because when you see him, you see you and you don't like what you see. Because he's so perfect. And so then you come face to face with your need for him. And by faith, you grab hold of him and he cleanses you and he frees you of your sin and he brings you into his kingdom. You're not just a citizen of the state of Florida. You're not just a citizen of the United States of America. Indeed, you are not even primarily that. Your first allegiance is to the one who has claimed you with his blood and life. You enter into his kingdom. The kingdom of heaven encompasses that, but it's far, far more than that because it doesn't end there. So you don't just come to Jesus as savior. You come to Jesus as king. The kingdom of heaven has a king. And here's the deal. It's not me. And it isn't you either. Sorry, it's not. The kingdom of heaven has a king and his name is Christ. Which means that we are not just the objects of his mercy, guys. We are the subjects of. Of his perfectly wise and righteous rule. Translation, we're supposed to do what he tells us to do. What does he tell us to do? Well, in terms of our mission, he tells us to go out into all the world and to build his kingdom. How? By making converts? No, disciples. Go into the world and make disciples. So that involves our mouths, right? I mean, we've got to go out then and actually tell people about this Jesus, this treasure that we've found. Because it's an inexhaustible treasure. We don't have to worry that there's not going to be enough of Jesus to go around. He's infinite. It's beautiful. So instead of not telling anyone and keeping it to ourselves, we need to get out, actually, and tell everyone we possibly can, but not just tell them about the forgiveness and life that's found in Christ, but tell them how to follow Christ. That's why this thing called personal worship and having your Bible in your lap matters. It's transformational. It is discipleship. To be a disciple is to be a learner, but not just academically. Experientially, we take what we learn as he transforms our mind and we then begin to live differently. So the kingdom of heaven then encompasses that as well. But that's not all. See, when Jesus comes to us and he says the kingdom of heaven, he also has in mind the eternal destination of this kingdom. Of all of these people that we, through the power of the spirit, are to go out with our lips, but then also, by the way, also with our lives And capture for the kingdom, share the kingdom with selfless, sacrificial lives that reflect that we value the kingdom of God more than anything else in the midst of a selfish, me-centered world. And that's all of us, by the way. That's the tension, isn't it? That values what? Happiness and self-promotion more than anything else. 
We're going out and building that kingdom. Well, where does that kingdom end? How does the story end? Where's this whole project going? It ends in a new heaven and in a new earth that is very much unlike this one in the sense that death is gone and sorrow is gone and suffering is gone. There will be tears, but only of joy. And all of the things that fracture us in terms of our relationship with God and in terms of our relationships with one another, gone. It is a pure and unbroken place where righteousness and perfect justice dwells and where God and man and man and man live together forever in perfect harmony. So here's the deal. Jesus comes to us with the kingdom of heaven, and here's what he says. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. And when you understand what he's talking about, I mean, it's hard not to agree. Start lining things up next to everything I just said and ask yourself, okay, what's more important? It's easy intellectually, but not so easy, perhaps. So Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. Okay, we're on board, Jesus. But now he tells us two stories that illustrate exactly how valuable this treasure is. And he tells it to us in a way that we can relate to in real and practical terms. He gives us two different kinds of people, very different. And watch what happens. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Now, that sounds weird to us. We don't generally find treasures in our backyard when we're, you know, digging a hole or something to plant a bush or whatever. But that's not all that unusual to the people that Jesus is standing there in the land of what we call now Palestine or Israel talking to in the first century. Because these people understood that for thousands of years, this land that they happened to inhabit at this particular moment had been overrun by empire after empire after empire after empire. And so then for thousands of years, all of the various people groups who have inhabited this land that they just happened to inhabit in that moment had taken their treasures and at the announcement of the impending army, hidden them. They put them in their walls. They put them in trees. They hid them under rocks. They hid them away in caves and they buried them in their fields, hoping to survive the attack and then to recover their precious treasures. But they didn't always survive. Oftentimes they were killed. Oftentimes they were taken away as captives to some other land where they lived out their lives as slaves. Oftentimes they were just driven out of the land for the rest of their lives. Sometimes they actually survived and lost their treasure map. You know, and so they're digging holes all over their field looking for their treasure and they can't find it anywhere. And there it lies for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And so every once in a while, someone in that land, even today, found a treasure. So he's talking to them in terms that they could totally relate to. He says, look, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And they're like, yeah, that happened to my cousin, you know, Bill. I read about that in the paper three weeks ago, you know, up in the north part of Galilee. There was a treasure and it was like, wow. And the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. Hidden in a field. Which a man found. Now, who's the man? Because the Lord is painting a picture of this guy, just like he will of the next guy. And the picture that he paints of this guy is just of a regular, ordinary guy doing his regular, ordinary thing. He is a plowman. He is a guy who's been hired by someone who owns this field that the treasure is contained in to plow his field, probably for a daily wage. So here's this dude. He's out there plowing the field. It's the Middle East, guys. I mean, it's hotter than Fort Lauderdale. Okay, the sun is beating down. He's sweating. His feet are searing. 
He's walking behind this stinky animal, row after row after row after row, and all of a sudden the plow hits something that feels and sounds different than a rock, which is what would be normal. A rock, a root, but not this thing. And it's abnormal enough for him to stop, to get down on his hands and knees, and in the dirt start digging until he uncovers some kind of a container And we don't know how big it was or anything like that, but apparently he just dug this dude all the way up out of the ground. And then with his heart pounding, because here's the deal, it's pretty rare, but it does happen occasionally. He's thinking treasure, right? So he pries the lid off. He looks inside and sure enough, it's treasure. But now look what he does with it. He puts the lid back on and reburies it, Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a plowman found and then covered it up. And that kind of offends our modern day sensibilities because we feel like he has some sort of fiduciary responsibility now to go to the owner and to say, hey, man, uh, you know, it pains me to tell you this, but there's a treasure in your field. But not in that day. These people all understood, all of them, for generations, for hundreds and thousands of years, that, you know what? These treasures hidden in these fields were long predate whoever owns it. And then whoever owned it before that, and whoever owned it before that, and whoever owned it before that. It was kind of like finders, keepers, losers, weepers sort of a deal, okay? The rabbis had ruled on these things ethically, and so he's not doing anything that in that culture would be deemed unethical. But he does now need to buy the field. Why? So that he can establish clear legal title to the treasure. And so watch what he does and doesn't do. Because that's where the rubber hits the road in this story and in the next. What happens now is what illustrates the value of this treasure, which is not a pot full of gold or diamonds or rubies or gems or whatever. It represents the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and then in his joy, because finding the treasure of the kingdom fills your heart with joy, whether you stumble on it or whether you find it after a long season of searching in his joy. What does he do? He waits a couple of years. He sells off some small portion of his stuff. And then kind of when he gets around to it, you know, he sort of begrudgingly purchases it so that he can then have the treasure. In his joy, Jesus says, he and immediacy is implied. He immediately is the idea and joyfully goes out and sells. Here's the phrase. All that he has. And buys that field. Now, why does he do that? Because the kingdom of heaven is more valuable than all that he has. And all that I have. And all that you have. And not just your possessions. It's much, much bigger than that. What do you value most? Not what do you say you value most? What do you sing you value most? I mean, we all sing it. What do you really value most? Because Jesus, your Savior and King, is coming to you and saying, Hey, um, let me give you my mind on this. Let me establish a priority system for your values. It's the kingdom and then everything else. Everything, everything else. And just in case we miss that, he tells us the next story. Verse 45, he says, again, the kingdom of heaven this time, he says, is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Now, the merchant is very, very different from the plowman. 
First of all, the merchant, as you'll notice, is not just stumbling upon this treasure. As we'll see in a second, he's searching for it. Hear that? He's searching for fine pearls, and he's going to find what he's been searching for, as we'll see. So he's very different in that regard. Here's the other difference. The plowman is just a daily, average, regular dude. You know, he works for a daily wage, and that's it. He doesn't have a lot, but, you know, he did give all that he had, which is a lot for him. This guy is fabulously wealthy. This is not a mere jewelry store owner, not that there's anything wrong with being a mere jewelry store owner. This is a rare man. He's one of those rare few merchants who moved and operated and did business in the pearl shakedoms of the Persian Empire. That's the image that's being called to mind. And who over the course of a lifetime built an empire, if you will, by getting these pearls, harvesting them through the Persian Empire and all these different pearl shakedoms and then supplying all the jewelry store owners in a particular area with pearls, which, by the way, the pearl was the single most valuable object in the ancient Near Middle East. Not diamonds, not gold. Jesus calls to mind the most valuable treasure. Pearls. He says again, the kingdom of heaven is like that kind of merchant in search of fine pearls. Who in the course of his business one day is invited into the tent of one of the one of the Persian pearl shakes. And after the endless greetings and ritual formalities that would have been there and that we would have had to go through. He's invited deep, deep, deep into the deepest chamber of the tent. And in the light of candlelight, this pearl shake pulls out a, a silk purse. And he opens it up and then very carefully and gingerly, he reaches in and he pulls out of this silk purse a giant pearl of perfect proportions. And what happens to the heart of this man who's been searching for this? Well, he's filled with joy. Because finding the kingdom, guys, fills your heart with joy. And so what does he do? Because it illustrates the value of the kingdom. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like that kind of a merchant who's in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value waited a couple of years, and then when he got around to it, liquidated some part of his assets and went and bought it. No. No. No, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Why? That's because that's what the kingdom of heaven is worth. That's what the kingdom of heaven even requires. That's what the kingdom of heaven demands. You're like, good grief, I've got to go sell everything that I have now? No, but you need to take everything you have and put it beneath the kingdom and put it at the disposal of the king. That's true. And it's not just possessions. What do you value most? Not what do you say you value most? What do you value most? Because the deal is Jesus is coming to us and very unambiguously saying, hey, you know, here's the kingdom of heaven. By the way, this is what you should value most. It's worth your all. It's worth it's worth everything. I may have told you the story, but back in the 16th century, during the time of the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin, when he was exiled from his native country of France, went to Geneva, Switzerland, where he founded, among many other things, a, a seminary. 
And at the seminary, then he began to train these young men to go out into what were at that time, not today, but at that time, hostile Roman Catholic controlled territories to plant these Reformation churches. And the deal was that the territories were so hostile that the average life expectancy of a graduate of Calvin seminaries was six months long. So you graduate. And then, you know, six months, give or take, you're killed in usually kind of a torturous way. You got to pause and think about that for a minute, don't you? Just work that through, because graduations are normally happy occasions. Your parents show, your grandparents show, your aunts and uncles might even make an appearance. Brothers and sisters are compelled to come and sign cards in the car in the parking lot before the deal. Some of your buddies come out for this kind of a thing. And it's cards and it's smiles and it's presents and it's, you know, I mean, it looks like some of us get a car, you know, we, we get like checks and it's dinner and it's festive. And there's all this anticipation about, OK, we've made this big investment in your life. Right. And now you're going to go out and for the next 40, no, six months. Six months, if this is the graduation you're talking about. Kind of puts a different shine on it. There are documents that have survived from those days. And so we have, for example, forged passports of these people who'd falsified their documents to try to beat the six month average. You know, we want to take it up a notch shooting for seven. There are written accounts of what happened. To some of these folks. So there's a written account, for example, of this young woman who showed up at John Calvin's door in the middle of the night, screaming, pounding on his door, freaking out, frantic only to be found by him standing there in her nightgown, covered in the blood of her husband, one of Calvin's graduates who had gone to France to plant a church and had come back on furlough and who was followed back across the border by some assassins who killed him in his bed next to his wife and let her live so that at the next seminary wives meeting, no doubt, she could share the story. And you hear that and you think to yourself, who would go to that seminary? Who would send their son there? Who would marry a guy who's about to graduate from that seminary? Because I, I don't I'm not like seeing a long future here. Or submit to their husband who says, you know what? This, I think, is what God is calling me, no us to do. And the answer to that, I think, is pretty simple academically. I mean, the answer to that is people whose minds have been transformed by the minds of Christ and who value his kingdom the way that he does. Who place it here above everything else and then take everything else, including their own lives. And put them below it. That's humbling, isn't it? you got to work that through. What do you value most? And it's an obvious list. Okay, so obviously, money is one of the issues, is it not? Is that an issue for you? The easy thing about that is it's quantifiable. It doesn't take a long time to figure out. 
God comes to us. He says, I own the whole of it. And here's what I want you to do for the good of your own soul and for the furtherance of my kingdom. I want you on a regular basis to take 10 percent of it. And I want you to worship me with it. And I want you to do 10 percent as a bare minimum. That's like the training wheels of giving, he says. It's a floor, not a ceiling. And then he says, other times I'm going to come and tap you on the shoulder and go, hey, listen, you know, I know you haven't planned for this, but. You need to help this family or you need to help this person or you need to invest in this ministry. You need as my spirit moves you since it's under me, right? It's un, it's under me. Is it? What about your time? I confess to you, that's that's my issue. I'd much rather write you a check that's almost painless for me. But time is tough. I mean, like many of you, I spend a lot of hours. I know you only see me on Sunday, a lot of you, but I don't just do this. So there's a lot of hours and then I have three kids right now. So we're in that season of life in which life is almost a blur, you know, and there's there's gymnastics on one night and then there's there's swimming three times a week. And then we've got all these other things going on. I mean, it's it's like it's crazy and it's particularly crazy in the fall. Like I I find myself at times literally no kidding, hyperventilating, laying in bed going (sighs) because it's just. It's overwhelming. Ever experienced that? It's not a lot of fun. It's full of wonderful things, but sometimes it's so full that, you know, I, I kind of feel like God's going, hey, Tom, I'd like you to put in a little time right here. And I'm like, Lord, you know, I mean, really? Yeah, really. What about your kids? You're like, oh, that's not what it is. Really? What if they wanted to sign up for Calvin Seminary? Oh, that's where the rubber hits the road right there, doesn't it? What if? I got to tell you, I would love nothing more than to see children and generation of kids go forth from this church as missionaries. Now, mind you, every person in this church is a missionary, and that's a mindset that we need to break. We tend to think of missionaries as professionals and we support them with our money. And that's those guys. That's that group of people over there. No, God doesn't call a group of people called missionaries and then the rest of us to go support them. I think we should support them. But he calls every person to be a missionary. Every one of us, to our families, to our offices, to our schools, to this community, we are every one of us a missionary, but some are uniquely called to go places, and even some of those places are not just uncomfortable, but dangerous. would love to see that happen. A generation full of kids get a vision for that. Why? Because the kingdom's here and everything else down here. We have the opportunity to participate in God's program of changing the lives forever. Your reputation. I think a lot of us at times and everybody struggles with this. Just be honest, okay? Oh, man, if I share Jesus with this person, if I I tell them I'm a pastor, they're going to think I'm weird. It's a conversation killer. It really is. We're getting along. Everything's good. What do you do? I'm a public speaker. That's easier. Pastor, it's look at the time. Uh, there's just nothing else to say at that point. I think we're more concerned oftentimes about what people are going to think about us than we are about the kingdom or even about them. Jesus is the only way. Comfort. Sin, addiction. What do you value most? 
Because Jesus comes to us and says, look, okay, here's the deal. The kingdom. Value that. And allow that to define your value system. From there on, it's the kingdom, and then it's like a flow chart beneath it. We're to value Christ's kingdom. And we're to value it more than anything else. And he gives us his mind on the matter, not to inform us, not for Bible trivia, not to take it under advisement, not to go, oh, that's interesting, and we learned something new today, and, but to be transformed by it, and then by the power of his spirit to go out and live selfless, sacrificial lives that exalt the value of the kingdom in the midst of a world that will notice when those are the kinds of lives that we live. Okay? All right, let's pray.